0: Okay, today's reading is from Daniel 8. Um, again, it's another kind of long one, so in. Okay, in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after the one that had appeared to me earlier. I saw the vision, and as I watched, I was in the fortress city of Susa in the province of Elam. I saw in the vision that I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up and there was a ram standing beside the canal. He had two horns. The two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, and the longer one came up last. I saw the ram charging to the west, the north, and the south. No animal could stand against him, and there was no rescue from his power. He did whatever he wanted and became great. As I was observing, a male goat appeared, coming from the west across the surface of the entire earth without touching the ground. The goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and rushed at him with savage fury. I saw him approaching the ram and infuriated with him. Sorry. He struck the ram, breaking his two horns, and the ram was not strong enough to stand against him. The goat threw him to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat acted even more arrogantly, but when he became powerful, the large horn was broken. Four conspicuous horns came up in its place, pointing toward the four winds of heaven. From one of them, a little horn emerged and grew extensively to the south and the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew as high as the heavenly army, made some of the army and some of the stars fall to the earth and trampled them. It acted arrogantly, even against the prince of the heavenly army. It revoked his regular sacrifice and overthrew the place of his sanctuary. In the rebellion, the army was given up together with the regular sacrifice. The horn threw truth to the ground and was successful in what it did. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the speaker, how long will the events of this vision last? The regular sacrifice, the rebellion that makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary and of the army to be trampled. He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings then the sanctuary will be restored. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there stood before me someone who appeared to be a man. I heard a human voice calling from the middle of the Ulai. Gabriel, explain the vision to this man. So he approached where I was standing. When he came near, I was terrified and fell face down. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision refers to the time at the end. While he was speaking to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and made me stand up and said, I'm here to tell you what will happen at the conclusion of the time of wrath because it refers to the anointed time at the end, appointed time at the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the king of Greece. And the large horn between his eyes represents the first king. The four horns that took the place of the broken horn represent four kingdoms, They will rise from that nation, but without its power. Near the end of their kingdoms, when the rebels have reached a full measure of their sin, a ruthless king, skilled in intrigue, will come to the throne. His power will be great, but it will not be his own. He will cause outrageous destruction and succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the powerful, along with the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper through his cunning and by his influence. And in his own mind, he will exalt himself. He will destroy many in a time of peace. He will even stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be broken, not by human hands. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. Now you are to seal up the vision because it refers to many days in the future. I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was greatly disturbed by the vision and could not understand it. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. Um, My name's Frank, if I've not met you yet. And um, I've got the privilege of taking us through uh, Daniel chapter 8 today. Um, Let me say a quick prayer um, for us before we... um, before we do just that. Lord God, I, I thank you for this morning, for this glorious weather. Um, thank you for the beautiful place that we get to call home here in, in Seattle, Lord, surrounded by the mountains and the water. And Yeah, it's so great to gather today, Lord. Thank you for your family. Thank you for this church. I just pray that you'd uh, open up our minds and hearts um, to hear your word today and what you're saying through it. In your name, Lord. Amen. Um, just want to say before I start, um, I just think the band did such an amazing job um, just kind of teeing up the service there. Um, I kind of I feel like every time I preach, I'm like, I'm so nervous beforehand. And then you just get taken through the first couple of songs and the scripture readings and the prayers. And it just really, like, and I don't know about you guys, but it just really gets me prepared for the rest of the service. So thank you guys. I uh, really appreciate that. Um, so let me give you a sense of where we're going to be going today. Um, in Daniel 8. Um, this is, is going to be quite a sort of content heavy um, kind of history lesson type um, first half, and then we will get to the meaning application later on. So I just wanted to give you a heads up on that. Um, I kind of wish that I could get Corey up here to do the first half because <laughs> the, uh, the, his- the history stuff, it certainly isn't, I'm not, I'm not going to lie, it's not normally what gets me excited, but I've done my best, and uh, hopefully uh, I'll be able to um, at least take us through kind of chronologically what's going on with all this stuff. Um, So where are we chronologically? Um, The book book of Daniel doesn't all unfold in chronological order. It's important to notice that. Um, So if you look at the first verse of both Daniel 7 and Daniel 8, um, we'll see that these visions came to Daniel in the first and the third year of the reign of Belshazzar. So if you were to put them chronologically, you wouldn't have Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 um, as, sorry, Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 would actually be chapter 5 and 6 if they were placed chronologically. So after Nebuchadnezzar um, and then before the writing on the wall in chapter 5. And then where are we in the book as a whole? Um, Well, I think Jake helped us see this last week. Um, The book of Daniel uh, has been building towards chapter 7, which is kind of like the hinge point of the whole book. And it's a key text for understanding not only um, what's going on in Daniel, but the whole arch of the biblical story. So in chapter 7, we hear about four beasts, um, and they represent four empires, which we saw in Daniel chapter 2. So the first one's Babylon, second is the Meadow Persian Empire, then the Greek Empire, and then fourthly, the Roman Empire. And then chapter 8, our passage for today, is concerned with the middle two empires um, in this list, so the Medo-Persians and the Greeks. And what are the key themes in Daniel that we've seen up until this point? Well, a big theme in the book of Daniel is power. So if you if you look at the the ram and the goat in chapter eight um, verses four and seven, it says no one could rescue from his power, and that um, e- echoes a statement um, that Nebuchadnezzar makes to Daniel and his friends in chapter three verse fifteen, where he says, "Who is the god?" who can deliver you out of my hands. Um, in fact, uh, Daniel chapter 3 and Daniel chapter 8 are actually kind of parallels. There should be like a table coming up on the, um, on the screens. So if you look at chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar thinks no one can deliver the Jews out of his hands. Chapter 8, the ram and the goat, no one can rescue, rescue them from, the, from their power. Chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar commands them to worship his God. And um, then you've got the little horn who stops the... Jewish worship of their God and defies God himself. Um, And then you've got chapter 3, the Jews defy him, they're they're preserved in the furnace, and God's ability to deliver is demonstrated. Uh, And then you get that echo in chapter 8, God's sanctuary and truth are finally vindicated. So jumping into a bit of a history lesson then, um, just want to say at this point that I'm greatly indebted to John Lennox and his book Against the Flow um, for the vast majority of this history lesson section. So if I kept quoting him, it would just literally take up half the word count. So um, pretty much everything in the history section is from John Lennox, just gonna put it out there. And that is an amazing book, by the way, Against the Flow, if you wanna um, get a, a sense of like, what Daniel's saying into our, our culture now. Um, so yeah, history lesson. Relatively simple to grasp, um, the big picture. So we've got the Medo-Persians, they rise up first, and then they're defeated by Greece. Most scholars agree that the large horn of the goat is Alexander the Great. Um, Alexander was a military genius uh, who was tutored by Aristotle, and he masterminded a series of conquests that made him ruler over a vast empire from Greece all the way to India. The defeat of the ram by the male goat anticipates the Battle of Issus when Alexander defeated the armies of Darius III. And then 10 years later, aged 32, at the height of his powers, Alexander died in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar, probably unaware that a man in the very same city had written a prophecy about him nearly 300 years earlier. When Alexander died, he had no clear successor, so there was a 40-year struggle between four of his generals, and the empire was eventually divided up into four parts. So there was um, the, the, the general Cassander ruled Macedonia and Greece. I'm going to struggle with this one. Lys- Lysimachus ruled Thrace and Asia Minor. Um, and of particular importance for our study today, Seleus- Seleucus was in charge of northern Syria, Mesopotamia and the regions of the east, and Ptolemy, southern Syria, Palestine and Egypt. So this is a really important point, because geographically, Judah and the capital city, Jerusalem, were sort of sandwiched in between these two kingdoms, and they were constantly fighting each other. So they they got caught up in a lot of that violence and a lot of those battles um, that happened. Uh, And there's more about that in Daniel chapter 11. So the four kingdoms of these different generals are symbolized by the four horns of the goat, which are then replaced by a broken single horn. And from the description given by Daniel, that little horn that sprung up out of the four horns and desecrated the sanctuary can be none other than the Seleucid Seleucid king, Antiochus IV, who reigned from 175 to 164 BC. The description, Little Horn, fits what we know of his personality well, since he seems to have been a man of mean and servile disposition, who used deceit and cunning to establish and enlarge his power base. If you look at Daniel 8, 25, it describes him in in very similar terms. From the first vision that Daniel got in chapter 7, he learned that the fierce fourth beast would think to change the times and the law and overcome, overcome the people of God. And then Daniel's told that this little horn would similarly trample on Daniel's people and some of its leaders and cause fearful destruction and succeed in all he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. Not only that, but he would also defile the sanctuary of God in Jerusalem by banning the regular burnt offering which God himself had commanded. So that is, the little horn would defy both God's and his law, just like the fourth beast in chapter 7, verse 25. So a pattern is beginning to emerge in the, in the first half of the second half of the book of Daniel. So Daniel records his own experience of the Medo-Persian law, which was enacted in an attempt to force him into disobeying the law of gods, which you can read about in chapter six. And then he records this earlier vision that he had about a fierce king and the fourth empire, which thinks to change religious festivals and laws. And then he sees a further vision in chapter eight about a powerful king from the third empire who stops the people obeying the law and banned their public ceremony and the burnt offering. So there was a pattern of deteriorating attitudes towards God and his law on the part of these pagan kings. Now, it was an appalling vision, and it causes Daniel to lay sick for several days. And when we see later from the historical records what actually happened under Antiochus IV, it's not at all surprising that Daniel was so affected by what he saw. In fact, the brazen defiance of God that Antiochus displayed was so serious and so significant that it's also a major focus of Daniel's final vision. There's further reason for this emphasis on Antiochus that we might easily overlook on a first reading. Not only does the vision point forward to a time of Antiochus, but Daniel is explicitly told that this is for the time of the end. In chapter 8 verse 17 so how can this description of a Seleucid king in the second century BC possibly relate to the time of the end well most scholars agree that this figure of Antiochus and the, hor- the horrors that he perpetrated they actually th- throw shadows long into the future into a time of the end where another leader will like Antiochus will arise and who will do similar things so in Antiochus, there, were, there are seeds of evil that will gestate and come to a fearful fruiting in a time yet to come. Antiochus and the events of his time, therefore, provide a prototype or a thought model for the future, which will help Daniel and us imagine what is to come and to be aware of similar tendencies in our own day. As we read Daniel chapter 8, verses 23 to 25, it's, it's hard to resist the impression that something far more distant and much more sinister than Antiochus is in view. It's almost like we're looking through Antiochus, through the contours of what he did in his time to a bigger and sadly more ter- terrible scenario in the future when a bold and fierce king who is like Antiochus in his deceit, his cunning and his power rises up against the prince of princes and is destroyed by a supernatural power. So, therefore, the the prophecies of Daniel chapter 2, 7, and 8, and as we'll see, chapters 9 and 11, they all kind of home in on this final manifestation of evil government that shall be destroyed by the coming of Christ. This means we have several perspectives on that time, much like we have the four Gospels in the New Testament that give us four different perspectives on the historical events that underpin the Christian faith. So before we consider what this means for us, let's just focus on Antiochus IV for a moment. So he took the throne in 175 BC and he ruled over the Jews until 164 BC. He was the first Seleucid king to record his claim to divinity on the coins of his kingdom. There should be a picture of that coin coming up, hopefully, on the screen. And he chose the title Epiphanes, or Epiphanes, again, struggling with the with the uh, correct uh, pronunciation of that one. But yeah, uh, he, he expressed that he was God manifest. That was a claim that he made, that he was God. Um, however, as a result of his eccentric and bizarre, bizarre behavior, his nickname was often parodied to Epimenes, which means madman. So Antiochus Epiphanes, what did he do? Well, he, he sought to consolidate his power through driving through a process of Hellenization, which is Greek, Greek culture, and he tried to create one religion for all, by force, if necessary. He couldn't tolerate what to him was a narrow-minded, exclusive view of of Judaism's um, devotion to one God, to the rejection of all others. In doing so, he was following in the footsteps of Nebuchadnezzar with, with his golden image, and Darius with the edict that he proclaimed. He shocked the Jews when he encouraged people to worship him as the Canaanite god Baal, a nature god that had been decisively rejected by Israel and the idolatrous epitome of all that they stood against. So Antiochus was trying to force the Jews back to a compromise that centuries before had cost them the locust years of exile. And the history books tell us that some Jews, they went along with that compromise, and. Actually, they welcomed it. And um, the apocryphal books of the Maccabees are a very important source for the history of this period. They tell us what happened from a traditional Jewish historical perspective. Let me read you this. In those days, certain renegades came out of Israel and misled many, saying, let us go and make a covenant with the Gentiles around us. For since we separated from them, many disasters have come upon us. This proposal pleased them And some of the people eagerly went to the king who authorized them to observe the ordinances of the Gentiles. So they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem according to the Gentile custom and removed the marks of circumcision and abandoned the Holy Covenant. They joined with the Gentiles and sold themselves to evil. So you've got this group of the Jews that follow along with Antiochus, possibly because they felt like they were missing out. The the culture and lifestyle of the Greeks was very attractive to them, and it made far, far fewer moral commands than the law of Moses and allowed them to basically give free rein to their impulses. It also opened up a, a whole new world of entertainment and sport that had been foreign to them, to say nothing of the intellectual stimula- stimulation of free exchange of ideas without having to be committed to any particular worldview. So. Some of the ordinary people of the Jews went along with this, but also some of the leaders as well. Um, Jason, the high priest, he abandoned um, any sense um, of the Bible or the Old Testament that he had um, being a, a, a definitive revelation from God. He turned his back on that. So the first commandment, you shall have no other gods apart from me, was a direct provocation to a king who called himself God. Antiochus hated and determined to destroy this pestilent religion. If only he could harness that religious loyalty for himself. And so like Nebuchadnezzar and the unwitting Darius, he tried to do so with horrific consequences for the tiny province of Judah. On the way back from one of his campaigns in Egypt, he invaded Jerusalem and he deliberately desecrated the Jewish temple going inside and removing the golden altar where the high priest prayed and the golden lampstands, together with many of the precious vessels of gold and silver. A couple of years later, Antiochus sent a large army to Jerusalem and attacked it, shedding a great deal of blood. He issued an edict, which is described in the book of the Maccabees. Then the king wrote to this whole kingdom that all should be one people and that all should give up their particular customs. All the Gentiles accepted the command of the king. Many even from Israel gladly adopted his religion. They sacrificed to idols and they profaned the Sabbath. And the king sent letters by messengers to Jerusalem and the towns of Judah. He directed them to follow customs strange to the land, to forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices and drink offerings in the sanctuary, to profane Sabbaths and festivals, to defile the sanctuary of the priests, to build altars and sacred precincts and shrines for idols to sacrifice swine and other unclean animals and to leave their sons uncircumcised they were to make themselves abominable in every in everything unclean and profane so that they would forget the law and change all the ordinances he he added and ho- whoever does not obey the command of the king shall die such words he wrote to his whole kingdom. He appointed inspectors over all the people and commanded the towns of Judah to offer sacrifice town by town. So Antiochus banned Jewish practices on a scale that far went, went, went far, far further than Nebuchadnezzar and Darius did. He even stopped the daily sacrifice. The daily sacrifice was a ceremony in which the whole animal was burned as a symbol of Israel's single-minded devotion to God. Antiochus could not tolerate it, so he banned it. He then had pagan sacrifices made on the altar, which was was an utter abomination to the Jews. And this will will come up again in chapter 9. Like Nebuchadnezzar and many others before and after him, Antiochus could not tolerate people who would not bow down to him. He was determined to break their spirit. So not content with banning the sacrifices, he also banned the reading of the law of Moses and ordered that all copies be burnt. Then he went further and banned even the observance of the law on penalty of death. In particular, he banned the Jewish practice of circumcision, even going to the extent of murdering Jewish babies who had been circumcised, hanging them around the necks of their mothers and hurling them down from the walls of Jerusalem. This frenzied anti-God madness reached its height on the 25th day of the month Chislev, corresponding to our December. In the year 167 BC, in the final act of supreme and studied blasphemy, Antiochus had the Jerusalem temple rededicated to the Greek god Zeus. Nothing like this had ever happened to the Jews. Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and Darius had defied God, but they had never done anything like this. Antiochus' act was in an entirely new category. For the Jews, it became known as the abomination of desolation. See Daniel 9.27 and Matthew 24.15. Daniel says that something like this will happen at the end of time, and in, no plain, in the plain, no-nonsense language of Paul, we read in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself, every so called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So Antiochus, he came close to this in his rage. He stepped into the temple and desecrated it. And God did nothing. How could a pagan polytheist boldly stride into the holiest ground on earth, defy the living God, defy the God who placed his name there, and abolish God's commandments, reverse his ordinances, and get away with it? It seemed as if every trace of God had been drained out of the universe. Antiochus must have gloated in victory, at the thought of having banished God from the world. How could anyone in his right mind hold on to such a religion when there was clearly nothing in it? It was a devastating moment for the faithful Jews. But Antiochus had failed to reckon with the anger that he provoked. That anger erupted in what we now call the Maccabean Revolt, after its leader, Judas Maccabeus, a.k.a. Judas the Hammer, which is an incredible nickname, right? Judas was one of the five sons of a priest called Mattathias who lived in Modim, a village about 17 miles from Jerusalem. It was Mattathias himself who lit the flame of resistance by killing a Jew who was about to offer a sacrifice to a pagan god, along with the king's officer, who was present. Mattathias and his family took to the hills and built up a band of warriors. Who were were determined to reverse the evils that Antiochus had imposed upon them? The campaign that followed is historically very complex. The resistance group fought not only the Seleucid occupation, but also against all collaborators from the Jewish side, so that at times the conflict resembled a civil war. In 164 BC, three years after Antiochus' desecration of the temple, Judas and his warriors recaptured all of Jerusalem except for Antiochus' citadel, the Acre, which was built on a hill overlooking the temple area. In order to cleanse the sanctuary, he built a new altar of unhewn stones. Judas chose priests with a reputation for integrity. They performed a ceremony of rededication for the temple that is celebrated by Jews to this day is the festival of Hanukkah that lasts for eight days and begins on the 25th of Kislev in the Jewish calendar. Here ends the history lesson. Well done. If you're still with me, i, I give you a pat on the back. Um, thank, thanks for sticking, uh, sticking through that. If you, if you nodded off, that's fine. I, I get it. Um, big picture basically, there's lots of different kingdoms that rise up against God, and it looks like often they get the victory, but then often then God comes up and, and defeats them, okay? And that's pointing forward to a, a future day when a similar thing will happen, and it'll look like, you know, it'll look like God is defeated, but then God will have the final victory. So that's, in a nutshell, what I just tried to share there, with, with far less uh, difficult pronunciations. Um, So what does this all mean, all right? What does this all mean? Well, let's consider what it meant for Daniel. So Daniel, this vision made him sick to the stomach, and he was so sick that he had to lie in bed for many days. Now, doesn't this strike you as odd? Daniel had witnessed undoubtedly miraculous power from God on numerous occasions before he had this vision of the ram and the goat. And even though the vision reassured him that God would be victorious in the end, Daniel was still overcome with sorrow and was greatly disturbed by what he had seen. He even admits that he doesn't understand it. And Daniel, as we know, had a reputation for correctly interpreting strange dreams and visions. And yet with this vision, he admits that he is stumped. What Daniel seemed to be able to grasp of the vision was that things were going to get worse for the people of God. Remember, Daniel was already living in a low point in the history of God's people. He was hundreds of miles from his homeland, and he'd already suffered so greatly under the rule of proud and cruel kings. And now he'd received the revelation from God that it was only going to get worse in the future. See, Daniel's clearly a man who loves God and loves the people around him. He is a pastor at heart. And so the thought that things would get even darker in the future deeply troubled him. He was passionate about the glory of God and longed to be able to worship him in freedom. Finding out that future kings would go even further than the kings that he'd suffered under in Babylon in their rebellion against God made Daniel physically unwell. Daniel's response teaches us that it's possible to be filled with sorrow at the suffering and oppression of God's people whilst also knowing that God is victorious in the end. Jesus wept when he saw his friends mourning the death of Lazarus even though he knew perfectly well that he was going to raise Lazarus up from death. We touched on this point earlier but I'd like to flesh it out a little bit more now. Why did God allow Antiochus to do such horribly shocking things to the place that was supposed to be his house, the place where his glory dwelt and where his people were called to worship in his presence. Why did God let that happen to the temple? Why didn't God step in? And that's a question that in all, in, in all honesty, there's no neat and tidy answer to. Throughout history, God has allowed many things to happen that you would have expected a good and loving God to step in and stop. The Bible does not give us an easy answer to the question, where is God? But one thing the Bible does tell us is that the ultimate where is God moment in all of history was when God did nothing as the Roman soldiers drove the nails through Jesus' wrists and ankles and submitted him to hours upon hours of excruciating pain and then death on the cross. Jesus hung there with the words, this is the king of the Jews inscribed above him. Antiochus falsely claimed to be God. Jesus made the same claim about himself. The only person in all of history who is qualified to make this claim Yet the religious leaders hated this, so they accused him of blasphemy and plotted to kill him. Where was God as Jesus' life ebbed away on the cross? Here was God's chosen Messiah, God's one and only son, the one who all the prophets, including Daniel, had been pointing towards, hanging on a torturous cross, merely three years into his ministry. Even Jesus was overcome with what seemed like the utter absence of God as he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But God was far from absent in that moment. In fact, this is where God was most active in the world and in history. Hear these words from Colossians 2 14 and 15. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations. That was against us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross and get this he disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly he triumphed over them in him see God in his providence he doesn't always tell us what he's thinking when he lets so much be done against him and his people but one thing We know for sure when Jesus breathed his last breath he roared it is finished this is God's cry of victory over the powers of sin Satan and death Jesus death and then his resurrection three days later means that once and for all God wins I do my sermon prep um, down in the, the little conference room which is probably like directly beneath where I am now And when I walked in to um, start prepping for this um, sermon, uh, someone had written, I think it was maybe one of the kids who liked to kind of doodle on the board. Someone had written, Jesus wins in massive letters. And I think that those two words, they sum up the entirety of the whole Bible. The Old Testament builds towards Jesus' victory, and the New Testament applies that victory. So in a way... One of the Dear Children of the Hallows more or less gave me my big idea for my sermon today. And I'm hoping that this becomes a trend that every time I walk into the room, a pithy and timely truth is waiting for me on the (laughs) boards. Jesus wins is the message of the whole Bible. And it is the message of Daniel. But as we've seen in Daniel's response to his vision, it's possible to be a godly, faithful, and brave person and still be sick to the stomach at the evil of the world, even though we know that Jesus wins. You see, we find ourselves in a time between Jesus' first coming as a suffering servant and his second coming to bring final judgment over evil, rescue his world from bondage and vindicate his followers and establish his rule over the new heavens and the new earth. In a way, we've got a lot in common with Daniel and his friends. They had been miraculously rescued from the furnace of fire by the hand of God, and yet they were still stuck in exile, in a land that wasn't their own. The visions Daniel had, as we noted earlier, were multi-layered, pointing to events that would happen in the centuries that followed, then in the Roman Empire, and then further on in the last days when God would wrap up all of history and put an end to sin, cruelty, and suffering. Theologians call the time that we are living in now as the now and the not yet. We live post-Christ and his cross and resurrection. His atoning sacrifice on the cross means that we have been saved from the fiery furnace of God's wrath. And the resurrection is the proof that God was pleased with his sacrifice and gives us a sure and certain hope that we will also be raised to new life. We know that Jesus wins, But we still live in a world where, globally speaking, there are millions, if not billions, of people who are living under religious oppression. Take North Korea, for example, where Juche ideology has reigned since the 1970s, when it was founded by Kim Il-sung. The core principle of this ideology is that man is the master of everything and decides everything. As a pseudo-religion, Juche defines people's value system giving meaning to their life and activities, and establishes norms for everyday life. Those who are unwilling to accept this belief system are considered traitors, and any attempt at deviating from this norm is legally punishable. Juche ideology is, in reality, forced upon its subjects with terror and fear. In this sense, North Korea's political ideology is a prime example of totalitarianism to those who live in countries where christians are actively persecuted daniel chapter 8 is a word of comfort the bible project overview of daniel which is an incredible resource um, for this series if you just go on youtube and type in bible project daniel um, i think it's like under 10 minutes long really helpful um, and it explains that in daniel there's a repeated pattern and then a repeated promise. So Daniel gives us a pattern for life as God's people in the world, which still has so much good in it, but is also filled with evil, cruelty, pride, and greed, where earthly kingdoms rise up and oppress the people of God, be it Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius, Antiochus, Pontius Pilate, Stalin, Hitler, or Pol Pot. However, the book of Daniel holds out a promise. No matter how dark it gets, no matter how much it seems like God is silent, or even that God has been defeated, God will never lose control. And when, when all is said and done, he will be victorious. We have the privilege of the New Testament that Daniel's visions were a foretaste of. We, ne- we know more than Daniel knew. We know that God has already dealt the decisive blow against sin, Satan, and death in the cross and resurrection of Christ, and that he will ultimately banish all that is evil from his world, and his people will live in the light of his love forevermore. So to those living under religious oppression, Daniel is a word of comfort. But to those living in free countries that allow religious expression, Daniel 8, and the book of Daniel as a whole, gives us a word of caution. As we've seen, history has an uncanny knack of repeating itself. Just because we live in a country that allows re- religious freedom, that doesn't mean that we always will. My friend back in England called Christian, who happens to also be a Christian, has the dubious title of being the first person to be arrested in the UK for peacefully praying outside an abortion clinic under the, P- the Public Space Protection Order, which specifically bans engaging in any kind of approval or disapproval towards abortion outside the facility and that includes prayer now I actually spoke to my friends and he said look like don't glorify what what I did like I've actually got quite a lot of things that I probably maybe would have done differently um, if I was to do that again but whether you agree with what he did or not the fact that the UK is, has has enshrined the law that makes peaceful prayer illegal should Make us pause and think, is this the thin end of the wedge? I couldn't help but think of Daniel in chapter 6, where despite the king's edict banning the worship of Yahweh, Daniel went and prayed by his window in full view of his adversaries, who saw him praying and then came and arrested him. It's not just the UK where we're seeing the early signs of religious oppression on the rise. Globally speaking, the World Watch List report of 2022 showed that persecution against Christians continues to rise, especially in Asian and African countries, and that the COVID-19 pandemic has further exacerbated discrimination. More close to home, we live in what is supposedly an affirming city where people are free to express themselves and be whoever they want to be without fear, judgment, or discrimination. And yet, in many workplaces... Workers can be fired for attempting to convert someone. Which begs the question, what constitutes attempting to convert someone? Does offering to pray for a sick colleague count? Does inviting someone to church count? Does giving someone a Christian book to read count? We need to be switched on to what is happening both globally and locally to the freedom of Christian expression To ignore it is to leave ourselves vulnerable and ill-prepared if things do continue to get worse for faithful followers of Christ. If we need any more reminding of this reality, then we've only got to turn to John 15, 18 and 19, where Jesus says this, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of this world, but I have chosen you out of it. The world hates you. The book of Daniel gives us a word of caution. So we have to be sober-minded and prepared for the possibility that history repeats itself and we find ourselves and our freedom to worship encroached upon. Whether we need a word of comfort or a word of caution, all of us are called to the same response. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Look with me at the very, very last verse of chapter 8. And the first half of that verse says this. I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. Now, this is so easy to miss. And I actually missed it literally right up until this morning. I was kind of getting ready to go and do some final prep. Um, and I just... This, this, the beginning part of this last verse just really, really struck me. Because as we've touched on, Daniel was currently serving King Belshazzar, who we know from chapter 5 was a king who shamefully used the sacred artifacts of God to drink and toast to his own gods, an extremely brazen and miscalculated act which he paid for with his life. Remember the vision of Daniel 8 came to Daniel in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign. So that came before God brought judgment upon Belshazzar. Daniel knew that before things would improve for God's people, they would get far worse. And what was his response? After the wave of sadness and grief had passed, he got up and he went about the king's business. This faithfulness, Sorry, this is faithfulness. Daniel had lived the majority of his life up until this point in exile under oppressive, bloodthirsty kings who did what they pleased and thumbed their noses at God. But Daniel doesn't give up. He's like Rocky in the ring. He gets knocked down. He spends a few days with his stomach all knotted up. Sick sick to the stomach with what he knew would happen to God's people. What does he do? He gets up. He takes a deep breath, and he resolves to continue to serve King Belshazzar, reckoning in his heart that that was what God had for him in that season of his life, and possibly up until the end of his life. Daniel was living out the famous prophecy from Jeremiah 29, verse 7 which says, pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. Paul urges the Roman church, living in another oppressive and bloodthirsty regime, to imitate the kind of faithfulness that Daniel demonstrates in Romans 12, 10-21. If you read those words, I mean, there's no real need for me to elaborate on it. Um, it tells us everything we need to know about what, what it looks like to be faithful as Christians. So what does all this mean for us? Thinking about our church. I felt like that the Spirit was convicting me this morning as I prayed over this sermon to commit ourselves to being faithful to God in the time, place, and season that we find ourselves in. Friends, what matters to God is not whether we have a big church or if we see revival or if we see hundreds of people saved, baptized and added to our church. What matters is that we are faithful to him, serving him in the ways we are commanded, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament and leaving everything else in his hands. If our church grows, all glory be to God. If we see people saved and added, all glory be to God. But if we stay the same size or even shrink, if we faithfully share the gospel for the next five years and not a single soul becomes a Christian, as long as we have been faithful to God and served, served him with our whole hearts, then that is all that matters. Paul understood this. Listen to his words in 1 Corinthians 5. and um, one, uh, I've written that wrong. I haven't got the chapter in there, sorry. Uh, But it says this. What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed, and each has the role the Lord has granted. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. What if in God's providence, you serve here at the Hallows Church for five years without seeing a single person saved and added, only to leave and suddenly ten people give, give their lives to Christ in a single day? We do not know the mind of the Lord in these things. We do not know why he sometimes blesses churches with explosive growth, seemingly overnight, and some others... Obey the Lord's commands to go and make disciples and never have the privilege of celebrating a single salvation story. But what we do know from Daniel 8 and from countless other places in scripture is that God calls us to faithfulness and that God calls us to persevere in that faithfulness, praying constantly to him that his will will be done and that his kingdom would come. Why don't you pray with me, Lord God. I thank you for Daniel chapter eight and for all it has to teach us, Lord God. Thank you that it's a word of comfort to those who are currently being oppressed, and it's a word of caution to those currently in freedom. And I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to be both encouraged, but also rightly sobered um, by these words, Lord. I thank you so much for. The fact that you've all called us to be in this room at the same time, Lord, so that you've all, you've called us all to a season, be it a week, be it a year, be it ten years, of being part of this this church, Lord, and I just pray, Lord, that you would lead us forward, that we would continue to be faithful to you, and doing the things that we know from your word and what you call us to do, living peacefully, um, praying for our governments, reaching out to the poor never ever returning evil for evil um, and so many other things god i just pray that you'd help us to be faithful and to leave everything in your hands thank you that that's the overarching message of daniel um, that you are in control and that you win the final victory so i thank you so much for that lord what, what an encouraging truth today I just pray for everyone here lord that if there's anybody who's feeling a bit like daniel on his on his sickbed um, just feeling, um, just knotted up with um, things that are going on around us and things that are going on in our world. I pray that you would meet, um, meet them in that place, Lord, for however long that takes, um, but then you'd help them to get up, Lord, to get up and to carry on serving you. I pray that we'd never stay down, Lord. We'd never stay, um, we'd never stay lying down, but we would, by your Holy Spirit, get up and continue um, to lovingly serve you, uh, trusting you with everything. Pray that in your name, Lord. Amen.